I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Izadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Bring it every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the wind down tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Hello. Hey. That was a weird hello. Hello. Wow. Hello. You just feeling, you ready for spooky season? I guess. Always ready for spooky season. Mm -hmm. I was thinking the other day that Halloween should just become the new, like, American aesthetic. (laughs) Like, instead of the stars and stripes everywhere all the time to, like, you know, when you think of America, that's the image you get. I'm like, we're the Halloween country, you know? Very true. We do Halloween, baby. Halloween Central. We got the spirit costume stores. We got the decorations. I mean, other countries are dabbling in it, but it's our thing, and they know it's our thing. And I just say, mm-hmm. let's take that whole vibe and just identify by it. Why not? Why not? Why We're not? scary. We're spooky. <laughs> True. Many, many places would agree. Yeah. <laughs> we, got a lot of, we got a lot of ghosts and skeletons in our Ooh. collective closet. Oh, no. So I think that'd be cool. At the same time, I know some people don't aren't down with this, but to me, part of me is like, yes, please. I would love just the whole world's aesthetic to shift to... <laughs> 
ghosts and graveyards and spiders and bats, pumpkins. You know, cosplay. What there's it? I get less excited about it when the actual day rolls up. Right. Same with Christmas. I love Christmas music. I love Christmas carols. I don't really love pop Christmas music as much. But when you start playing it at the beginning of November, I'm like, I I'm over it by mid-November. Mm-hmm. And that's when we still got a long way to go before Christmas. So let's let's just temper it a little bit, make it keep it special, keep it, you know, uh, what's the word? Keep it concentrated. And then we gotta keep it concentrative. Stay tuned for our offspring Halloween album. Diana will be. 100% writing and producing. No. So don't stay tuned. Oh. Because you will die before I make it. <laughs> and so will I. That one will stay on the bucket list. <laughs> Uncrossed off. Very excited to bring you this show today. Uh, Going to bring you back to your childhood, I think. Yeah, if you have any contact with children at all, whether you're a parent or you're an aunt or yeah. uncle or you're just your friends have kids now, and that's like kind of our situation. Right. Right. Multiple nieces and nephews, many, many friends, kids. Or maybe you're one of those people who was a child once. If you know anything about kids or were ever one yourself, you probably know about a little book called Goodnight Moon. Oh, I just got sleepy just when you said it. Yeah. I just felt like I was cozied up into my race car sheets. <laughs> you're saying goodnight to your bowl of mush. Saying goodnight to my bowl of mush, yep. Uh, yeah, this is like a, a ubiquitous gift at baby showers. Yeah. In fact, my friend Sammy, hi Sammy, I know she's listening because she listens to every episode. She's the best. I love her so much. And for her baby shower, for her oldest, she got six copies of Goodnight Moon. <laughs> <laughs> and every time she'd open it, she'd be like, oh, okay, <laughs> I guess I got some <laughs> returning to do. But I remember being like, okay, just mental note, never ever give a copy of Goodnight Moon to anyone because they're going to get <laughs> Somebody it. Somebody else will get it. Yeah. Somebody's going to give it to them or You're they gonna... already have three from their last kid you're gonna single-handedly plummet good night because everyone's gonna think so well i thought someone else would get it and they're like for some reason in the year 2022 nobody bought the book good night i get every kid the phantom toll booth it's an amazing book yeah everyone i've ever given it to well so far their kids are not old enough to tell me how they like it but the parents have really enjoyed reading it to them (laughs) as children so (laughs) anyway just throwing that out there as an alternative I got to throw out there real quick that we we talk about Sammy. We've got to say our friend. That's true. It is our friend. Well, specifically because one time Sammy was over and I was on the phone with someone else and I said into the phone, oh, Diana's friend Sammy is here (laughs) and I'll never forget it. As soon as I got off the phone, Sammy was like, what do you mean Diana's friend? Oops. (laughs) Am I not your friend too, Eli? And I was like, of course you are. I just, just, you know, you guys knew each other first and you worked together and, and I just... (laughs) <laughs> and I'll never forget that moment. No, and I will always she got think you. of Sammy she as got you. our friend, our dear friend, Sammy. <laughs> we also like to say her name like uh, Dean from Super Sammy! <laughs> Sammy! Sammy! Which she doesn't even watch that show, she but doesn't. she always thought it was funny. Yeah. Anyway, love Sammy. She's the best. And if you know her, you agree. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, she's the one. <laughs> I think it was pretty much her baby shower that made me be like, that's a basic gift. Don't give that gift. Yep. But it turns out that the author of Goodnight Moon was anything but basic. And uh, I really want to talk about Margaret Wise Brown, the author of Goodnight Moon, and her 10-year lesbian relationship with a poet named Michael Strange. I'm excited to hear it. Let's 
do it. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Margaret Wise Brown was born in 1910. She had very wealthy parents, but oh. they did not get along at all. Oh. Most of their time was spent either squabbling and like slamming doors and yelling at each other, or they spent as much time as far apart from each other as they could get. Sure. So like I think her dad went to India for a while, oh. <laughs> like very far away. <laughs> Another province of the wealthy is that like when you're having a spat, it's not like I'm going into the bedroom. Mm-hmm. It's I'm going across the globe. Yeah. I need a minute. A few blocks is not enough space. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, inevitably, they got divorced when ah. Margaret was still pretty young, probably for the best. Consequently, she spent a lot of time at boarding schools, um, which she did well in school, but she was actually more of an athlete. She's a very athletic young lady. She went to Holland's College, which is now Holland's University, and she basically formed the equestrian team there, and it's still like a point of pride to this day. Okay. Uh, she didn't. brought the horses. I think basically there was some yeah. money involved for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some money was involved. She yeah. wasn't just like, I have passion. Yay. <laughs> like, that's not enough. <laughs> Good people at Holland's College are like, look at our fleet of horses. Is it a fleet of horses? I doubt it. Look at our murder of horses. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, while she's at Holland's University, she got her uh, English degree and she started teaching in 1932. And that took her to the Bank Street Experimental School in Brooklyn. Now, Bank Street is a school that develops and teaches methods of teaching. So it's a teacher's, it's a teach and teacher school. Okay. <laughs> so they teach teachers how to teach yes. children. There are children at this yes. school. There's also a, a primary school there. Okay. And they have children enrolled in it. Okay. And they try out these new methods on the kids. And then they're like, did you learn that better? <laughs> like they ask right. them questions and they kind of do laboratories with these kids and stuff like that. So they are experimenting on children in laboratories. Yeah. At Bank Street yep. Experimental School. <laughs> Please do not send me a letter Bank Street Experimental School. <laughs> I think they sound really cool, actually. Kind of like a Montessori thing, maybe yeah. sort of thing where they're just trying out different, different uh, new ideas and seeing if they it lends itself to learning a little bit better. It was it was a good experiments on children in laboratories situation. <laughs> yes. One of the good ones. No, no. Yeah. There's no like weird helmets or needles. Yeah. They weren't giving them superpowers, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then trying to use them as weapons in a Yeah. There's no shaved heads. Or, yeah. yeah, you yeah. Know. So up until this point, children's literature had always been just fairy tales and fables. You know, you got your three bears, you got uh, your your magic mice. beans, you got your three blind mice, uh, kids turning into gingerbread houses in the woods. The scorpion on the toad or whatever. Classic. You know, learning, yeah. learning stuff. Learning stuff. Little animals learning stuff, teaching lessons. There weren't really children's books in the way that we think of them today, but Bank Street was emphasizing what they called the here and now philosophy. And this basically said that kids want and need to connect to the real world around them. Like, they like stories about trolls and dragons and gingerbread and <laughs> fairies and, you know, sure. all that kind of garbage, <laughs> which is actually what I prefer to read still. Mm-hmm. But um, 
they also wanted to hear about bugs and trucks and animals and good night rituals, mm -hmm. things like that, things they were experiencing in their day to day lives. So Margaret conducted these laboratories where she would experiment on children and encourage <laughs> now now <laughs> she would encourage kids to tell her stories. And then she would kind of hear what they observed and what they were interested in. And then she would also invite illustrators into the classroom to paint in front of the kids and learn what they like in pictures, too. Then she started writing kids' books. Her first book was When the Wind Blew in 1937. And that landed her a job as an editor at the W.R. Scott Publishing House. When she was there, she collaborated with her hero, Gertrude Stein, on a children's book, and she wrote hundreds of stories of her own. She had so many stories in her that she had to publish under several different pen names just to keep from flooding the market with the name Margaret Wise Brown. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, all we got is Margaret Wise Brown titles. There's no room on the shelves for anybody else. <laughs> we, we just look like a Margaret Wise Brown store in here. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, okay, well, what if it's Schmargaret Flies Down? Oh. They're like, oh, I got room for that. Oh, I got room for Flies in the, Down. In the F section. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she, she probably had more clever pseudonyms than that, I'm sure. No, she did. Um, <laughs> she was. She worked with like four different publishing houses as well. So she's like really dominating this market. She Damn. had like four different names, four different publishing houses. She is handling her business. Yeah, she is several authors in one. Yeah. <laughs> she's like she's like J.K. Rowling and uh uh, hang on, I know authors and. The look you're giving me, like, come on, you can do it. You can do it. J.K. Rowling, and um, J.K. Rowling, and uh, uh, Philip Pullman, and sure, <laughs> I mean, it's a children's book, and yeah. it is for it, it children. Is. They teach it in elementary schools in England. Okay, go read His Dark Materials. It's the it's so good. Greatest book trilogy. The second book after time. Book of Dust just came out, by the way. I know. I have to finish Book of Dust. Um, I have to great. finish my third reread of His Dark Materials for <laughs> All right. So she's like four authors. Insert names here. <laughs> <laughs> she had been engaged before, just to get into the romance part. Oh, yeah, of course. I forgot what this show was. <laughs> I know, right? It's like all of a sudden we're talking about children's literature. No, she had been engaged before to this nice society boy, a quiet young man from Virginia. Oh. But apparently she overheard her father and her boyfriend laughing about how to control her after they would get married. Uh -oh. So she dumped that loser Bye. on quick. <laughs> um, she did date around a little bit. Uh, she dated the Prince of Spain named Juan Carlos. Wow. Uh, pretty, pretty hot, I bet. <laughs> I'm just going to. Prince of Spain. Uh, I'm dumping you, and I'm going to go date the Prince of Spain? If you're going with a quiet young man from Virginia who wants to control you to the Prince of Spain, yeah. well, that's a pretty good glow up. Yeah. Unless yeah. the Prince of Spain also wants to control you. Well, he's a prince. He wants to control everybody, right? Is he a reluctant prince? Oh, yeah, or I an guess. an excited prince? Well. Because there are both. Maybe he's Not really... Not all princes. <laughs> you could say there were two princes, and what have one I done? had a princely <laughs> racket. But this one had a big seal up on his jacket. All right, go ahead now. I'm going to punch you so hard. <laughs> she also dated a guy named Preston Scheuer and also a lawyer named William Gaston. It's probably Gaston, but I'm going to say that we should stick with Gaston. I agree. Because that's 
I, I he's you know I heard that was his his law commercial was nobody fights like Gaston. Oh yeah, <laughs> nobody douses lights like Gaston. <laughs> no one, obviously, nobody in a wrestling match, uh, nobody fights, <laughs> fights like, Gaston. like Gaston. Yeah, um, which probably wasn't as common for lawyers, but back then it was an acceptable tactic in the court of law. You should change it to no one prosecutes harmless crackpots like Gaston. <laughs> She was accounted a beautiful woman. She was blonde with green eyes, and she had a lovely smile. And like we said, she was very athletic, so she had a nice figure. She was strong and energetic. She loved dogs. She liked to hike, hunt, camp, boat, swim, ski. Whatever you want to do, she is down to do it. She's a total firecracker. Okay, Margaret. She sounds like a lot to keep up with. I know, right? She's She's got energy. Margaret, can we have a day off? She's like, no. Damn, okay, all right, where are we going? Let's get after it. Let's go. So she's dating around, but she hasn't gotten anywhere close to marriage again since that guy back home that was laughing with her dad. Right. So one day she's hanging out with her longtime, sometimes lover, (laughs) William Gaston, Mm -hmm. um, who probably had his boots in her book or something. (laughs) (laughs) One assumes. And apparently the New the New York Times described him as, quote, a hopeless alcoholic and serial philanderer. And that's like the only thing I could find written about him, which wow. is like kind of a sad legacy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, he went with some interesting ladies, including Margaret. Yeah. And- I remember he was dating those three blonde sisters. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> triplets. Was, they were they were fawning over him all the time. They sure were. I don't know. Mm, they were ready to fight. He was jacked for uh, for an alcoholic. Well, he ate three dozen eggs. Oh yeah, well five dozen eggs, wasn't it? I think by the time he, by by this point in his life, yeah. he was eating. By the time he was grown, he ate five dozen eggs. Five dozen eggs. Yeah, it's that's roughly the size of a barge. Yeah, that's big. So she's hanging out with William Gaston. Yes, right. Yes. And he introduces Margaret to one of his other sometimes lovers. Oh, poet and playwright Michael Strange. Michael Strange was born Blanche Ulrichs, and she got married to a guy named Leonard Thomas in 1910, and they had two kids, and that was all by the time that she was 20 years old. Um, But she was an early suffragette. She bobbed her hair before most women did, and she went marching with the other suffragettes. In her autobiography, she wrote, quote, Looking back on my adolescence, my preoccupation with boys seems excessive, and yet... There had always existed the invariable dictum that the only career for women was marriage and that it was natural for her to think about it continually until she achieved it. It did not seem important for her to know about any other thing than how to try to draw to her side a young gentleman with money. That says it all. Yeah. (laughs) About like women's lives for a long time. (laughs) Many, many decades. Uh, so, yeah, so she's like, no wonder I was so wrapped up in all that shit. Yeah, but now that I'm, guy. Yeah, now yeah. I'm a grown lady and I see the world a little differently. Yeah. Um, and she kind of got bit by like a literary bug and she started writing in mm. 1914. She published some of her poetry in 1916 and that meant she started hanging out with artists and rabble rousers. Oh, yeah. And that caused some rifts with her husband, Leonard. And so they divorced in 1919. That, man, you know, fellas, if your wife starts hanging out with artists, mm-hmm. you know, it's over. I can tell you right now, that's not a crowd <laughs> that's going <laughs> to support 
your son. No. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I couldn't even. They were, probably, <laughs> <laughs> were probably just much better people who were like, you should experience joy in your life. I know, right? so like, Whoa, really? You can do that? <laughs> Despicable behavior. <laughs> he's like, you're spending all your time with these hooligans, these artists. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're going to want to be experiencing joy in your life. <laughs> I won't have it. Not my wife. Not, Not my in wife. this house. <laughs> well, that might have been it, but... Maybe part of his problem was that she was sort of having a little bit of an affair. Oh, yeah. Well, that might have been. That might have been. <laughs> might have upset him more than the artists. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I was like, I love this official story or cover stories. <laughs> he didn't like all these artists. And he's like, no, I just didn't like they were fucking another man. <laughs> uh, and the other man, by the way, was movie star John Barrymore. <laughs> An artist. There you go. Another one of them Still artists. Their fault. John Barrymore, mm-hmm. star of stage and screen. That's right. Ridiculous romantics might remember him as the brash young newspaper illustrator who proposed to Evelyn Nesbitt in uh, episode 16. Wow. So John Barrymore's getting around. <laughs> well, John Barrymore got all the way around well, that's and came true. back for more. <laughs> well, by 1916, uh, he's well over Evelyn, I guess. <laughs> Uh, and he's hot and heavy with Blanche. And she adapts a couple plays for him to star in. He does his silent film turn as Hamlet that made him famous oh, while they sure. were together. In 1920, they got married. He provided illustrations for her book, Resurrecting Life, which was some erotic poetry that she wrote about her affair with John. And she released it under her pen name, Michael Strange. Oh. And this is because her bu- her publisher was like, you're a society lady. Like, maybe you don't want your erotic poetry tied to your real name, uh-huh, uh-huh. Blanche, so that people are, like, walking around knowing that you like to do it or something. Right, right. What? Whoa. We can't have people <laughs> thinking that women like sex out there. <gasps> so she chose the name Michael Strange, but actually her book got pretty popular. <laughs> so she started going by Michael Strange all the time in everyday life. Wow. Uh, So that pen name didn't work out. She just erased her old name entirely. And I thought it would be fun to hear one of her poems. Oh. So you kind of have a little picture in your mind of the type of woman who would write this poem. So we should head on down to Poetry Corner and hear a song by Michael Strange, which was published in 1919. For what have you sought, my love, along those flashing wastes of passion? Who moves so wearily as the dawn's unwilling step, overstamped in ruins of unlimited woe? Oh, what crucifix you tortured into nailing yourself against, that your arms are become so attenuate as those stark, supplicating limbs of nightmare. I wonder, have you assaulted life in darkness, and whispering, I need you so, oh let me. Yet when the spear entering, nailing you into frantic submission, you crying out from the very center nerve of such ecstasy, I have fear. Since you then selling into bondage what you might surmise only, and for the witchery of moments, since you denying of yourself more than you could have known before self-betrayal, and all in order to induce those scarlet wings of appalling lips to glisten, close across your mouth, Yet when this tease of pleasure, titillating, curious, truth-stained exclamations out of you, and their sense languishing, mateless, unanswered along the air, ah, then you turning to regard the gracious youth of your sleeping love alongside of your waking, ageless heart. 
Jeez. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Look, I mean, everyone's a critic, um, but that includes me. And, uh, <laughs> Including me. That is like, I got some unlimited woe from that because <laughs> what, did she have a thesaurus in her hand when she was writing? It's very wordy. It's very... Extremely. Big word, a lot of metaphors. I feel like I'm listening to a Decemberist song. <laughs> That's a good, <laughs> very apt uh, comparison. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of like, you know, it seems more like her vocabulary mattered more than like what she was actually trying to convey to you. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm like, you're going, you're kind yeah, of like torturing exactly. all these like cool words, like attenuate and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, but you haven't really told me anything. I, I'm not sure. There's definitely some in there where I was like, that's kind of sexy. I could feel like if you're 1919, like, oh, frantic submission, crying <laughs> out. Like, you know, you might be like, oh, my that's goodness, true. I'm getting a little shivery inside. But like, I don't know. It it also feels so involved that it's like, I, I don't know. You can't, you have to really look for mood in it and like that's sort of poetry's job is to be spare and give you something (laughs) big with very little but anyway I mean maybe you're right and it's just an era thing like in the 1920s people are like why yes I am crying out from the very center nerve of such ecstasy and I do have fear since you selling them into bondage what you might surmise only from the witchery blah 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 blah. you know what I mean like maybe they maybe that was just casual language to them (laughs) How are you today? Ah, the witchery of moments. (laughs) In either case, her relationship with John was tumultuous, Uh, partly because of her own temper and her moodiness, and partly because, of course, John Barrymore's noted alcoholism. Mm -hmm. A review of her autobiography from the New York Times in 1940 wrote that they violently quarreled and were violently reconciled, and that they raced around Europe and America at a thrilling pace, that they wore clothes as much alike as possible and, quote, passionately threatening suicide. (laughs) So they were both big mood people. They had a lot of feeling. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to share it with everyone. Everyone in a 16-foot vicinity was going to get a piece of that. It's like two divas. It's like, I'm trying to think of two divas, but honestly, I'm just like, it's not even... Beyonce and Jay-Z. It's it's like two Beyonce's <laughs> like you have. <laughs> but that makes Beyonce sound kind of crazy. And yeah, she's not. she's not. She's a very normal yeah. <laughs> acting person. It's like um it's like two Jared Leto's. Mm. Yes, <laughs> there it is. Very uh, just a lot. It's just a couple of a Shia much. LaBeouf's just running around. Oh man, it's like Jared Leto and Shia LaBeouf touring America and Europe together. I'm, you know what? I'm going to Australia I'm if that happens. <laughs> I'm exhausted just thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, Michael and John had one daughter together, Diana Barrymore, who would also go on to become an actress. Michael wrote a play called Claire de Lune, which reunited John with his sister Ethel on stage. And so people were real excited about it, but it was super panned by critics. Whoops. <laughs> so much so that it prompted John to send letters to reviewers defending Michael's talent, oh. <laughs> which I'm like, that's never that's a good sign. Never good. <laughs> <laughs> if the actor is telling the reviewer, no, it's actually they're actually a good writer. You're just <laughs> dumb. Then um, nobody looks good. She and John divorced in 1925. Again, probably for the best. <laughs> yeah. Though they did stay friendly oh, throughout the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. And she started acting on stage. And then she married for a third time a lawyer named Harrison Tweed 
1929. Well, you've got to be a lawyer if you got a name like if, if you're Harrison Tweed, Tweed, you either got to be a lawyer or a professor. Right, right. Um, Although of Har- law. <laughs> <laughs> specifically. <Yeah. laughs> Although Harrison Tweed made me think of like a grocery store. Because of like, Harris Teeter. That's probably why. Yeah. Okay, that's why. Yeah. Harris Teeter. Harris Teeter. Like going down to the Harrison Tweed. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Pick up some. A few things from the Harrison Tweed. She hosted a poetry and music program on the radio that got really popular. Oh, yeah, sure. People love the radio in 1929. <laughs> what, what else was there? Yeah. And she released her autobiography in 1940. Okay. And the New York Times review from 1940 says that it's worth reading, even though, quote, Its writing is pretentious and involved, more diligent in effort than objectively successful. Its author's mind is apparently allergic to simplicity. (laughs) Which I think is a spot-on review. That sounds (laughs) just like that poem. Exactly. You know, I mean, more diligent in effort than Mm -hmm. objectively successful. Yeah, like, I could tell you worked really hard on getting all those words into that poem. Right, but sometimes simple conveys more. Yeah. And that's where the hardship of poetry is. Yeah. I don't know. I don't remember who the quote. I took poetry uh, for a little while when I was minoring in English. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember who said it, but the quote is, prose is words in their best order. And poetry is the best words in the best order. Right. Anyway, that's my poetry lesson for the day. (laughs) Thoreau said, simplify, simplify. Of course, we always ask, why didn't he just say simplify? (laughs) Anyway, similar complaints were made about her playwriting style. So these, this is what John's fighting against yeah. in these letters. He's like, no, I promise yeah. you, the attenuate is the right word there. <laughs> so it's in 1940 that Margaret and Michael meet. And it's, of course, through William Gaston mm-hmm. um, in between one of his many dozens of eggs. He stops <laughs> to introduce them. And Michael is 20 years older than Margaret. And she's an alluring woman. She's got strong features and dark, shining hair. She's a tabloid fixture. And she was known for being an outspoken feminist. The New York Post says Margaret was smitten. But apparently it started out as more of a mentoring relationship. So I like to think that they're all, you know, hanging out at William's apartment, having, you know, highballs. Oh, it's a nice little party. Yeah, having a little party. And they're like passionately arguing about a novel or Mm -hmm. play or something. Mm -hmm. They're like, Les Miserables was Victor Hugo's seminal book. And she's like, no, it was Hunchback of Notre Dame. You've clearly never read Hunchback of Notre Dame, if you think that. I saw the cartoon. (laughs) Oh, well, never mind. (laughs) Gaston's like, oh, those cartoons are great. (laughs) It helped me have a much better legacy than I left in the New York Times. (laughs) Anyway, so so they're like hanging out, right, arguing. And since we're in Speculation Station, I imagine that Margaret, just in a little aside to Michael, is like, oh, yes, uh, yeah, I've published quite a few children's books, but I'd really love to write a novel one day. And Michael is like, oh, well, maybe I can give you a few pointers. Why don't we go somewhere quieter and chat? And Margaret's like, oh, shit, it's Damn, well, Margaret was thirsty. <laughs> That's and, the scene I would set in the movie I'm making about Margaret Wise Brown. In my right, head. right, right, right. <laughs> However it happened, right. they did start seeing each other in 1940, and they wrote each other letters, which Michael insisted on writing in code. Margaret was bunny or bun, and Michael was rabbit. 
But surprisingly, it doesn't seem like they really tried to hide the nature of their relationship for most people, even though this was a time where, and this is true, a lesbian relationship was enough of a reason to put a woman in an insane asylum. They were just like, oh, you're attracted to women and you're a woman? Well, call up the wagons (laughs) and we're going to the funny farm. That's outrageous. How could anyone be attracted to a woman? And they're like, what about you, sir? And he's like, uh, well, I uh, I mean, yeah, I'm attracted to women. <laughs> uh, don't take me to the farm. <laughs> oh, what's that? Like, oh, freaked out because he almost let it slip that he was gay. And that's, Oopsie. you know, this poor, this this guy is living a lie. This guy, he's having a hard time. Yeah. He's, and he's and taking you know, it out on society, you know? Hurt people hurt people. Oh, damn. That's good. You should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> You should put that on a t-shirt, except it would just look like it was just a command saying, hurt people, hurt people. Uh, Yeah, you kind of need tone for that one. No, no, now I want that t-shirt. Now now I want it more. (laughs) That'll be one of the ridiculous romance t-shirts we sell when they let us have merch. Hurt people, hurt people. (laughs) With ridiculous romance. I think iHeart will be like, um. How about not we that might one? not be able to do that one. HR <laughs> just a lot of letters coming problem. in. Yeah. <laughs> so they're dating, and when Harrison Tweed discovered the affair, Michael divorced him. She was like, "Yeah, you caught me. Bye bye." Oh, right. <laughs> I'm sure he was like, "Well, you could just stop." Yeah, and she's like, "Come hey, back to me, you know." But you're Harrison Tweed. Like, oh give give me something, <laughs> and maybe I will. But I got nothing from you, buddy. <laughs> I married you for stability only, and I've had enough of that. Thank you so much. <laughs> so she moved in with Margaret in 1942. And before we find out more about the two of them together, let's hear a few words from our sponsors. Sounds good to me. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Bring it every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. 
Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular's single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Welcome back to the show. So we've heard a little bit about Margaret's personality already. You know, she liked to hunt. She liked running around with her dogs. She's outdoorsy, athletic. Doesn't sound like Michael Strange to me so far. You know, Michael Strange doesn't seem to be a person who likes to go hiking and around. And so, um, you know, they just had, to me, just had this literature bond. Right, right. Because they seem to be very different people. Which is a strong bond. Which is a strong bond. It's very true. Words are the, the, the glue that hold society together. I, that's uh, that was said by me, 2021. <laughs> Those were some words. Yeah. Hey, they're holding society together. <laughs> they're, they're doing work. <laughs> I think it becomes more clear that their personalities are very different when you find out that Margaret is a kind of a deeply weird person. She was very, very whimsical. She would often talk about how she felt like she was still a child mm. and she was worried that she was too immature. But her friends really loved how whimsical she was. They yeah. really delighted in all her little quirks. She did stuff like form the Bird Brain Society. I'm already into it. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Where any one of the members could decide that a random day was Christmas and all the other members would have to gather to celebrate. Okay. I mean, sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Sounds whimsical for it's sure. Cute. Cutesy. Kind of goes back to- Right. Uh, you were saying. Gonna, I was saying Christmas. You want to keep it at Christmas so it's mm-hmm. special. But hey- you know what? They're having a good time. Right. They we were all like, get the family together. Yeah. If you need a reason, fine. It's Christmas. And, you know, they're like, what? You're having Christmas in September? That's outrageous. And they're like, uh, hello. We're bird brains. We're bird brains, That's baby. That's kind of the whole thing. <laughs> bird brains, baby. <laughs> oh, I don't like them. <laughs> I know. I don't, I don't know that they talked like that. But it feels like it's funny that it's such a little weird, cute thing like that. Because I'm yeah. like, society must have been just so, like, kind of stuffy about what you're allowed to do oh, and right. say. And, th- you right. know, that even something little like that, being like, guess what? It's Christmas in July. It was like, people were like, whoa. Freaks. Christmas in July. What a weirdo. Haul them off to the asylum. <laughs> <laughs> Throw them in with the lesbians. Yeah. <laughs> What a fun party they would have, though. Oh, my God. A <laughs> Christmas lesbian party? Can I go, please? <laughs> if anyone out there is going to have a, a, a Christmas lesbian party or a lesbian Christmas party, if those are two different things, Actually, I don't know. Ben does some of my lesbian friends' Christmas parties. And I was going to say, if wonderful. anyone has been, it would be you. <laughs> yeah. Good food. Fantastic parties. Yeah, sweet angels. Not sweet angels. No, you're those right. girls were a mess, but they threw a damn good party. Well, that's why it was a good party. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, so she's got the Bird Brain Society. Uh, she spent her first royalty check uh, from her books buying a street vendor's entire flower cart so she could fill up her house <laughs> with flowers. Wow. She and Michael lived together in a place that she called Cobble Court. Margaret found this house while walking around New York. It was smack in the middle of the skyscrapers of Upper East Side, and it was this tiny farmhouse. Man. And she rented it right away. 
because of course that would seem like a magical, weird, like elfin thing to yeah, find oh definitely, yeah, yeah, what and something this? a child would do, especially like oh, a rundown house that nobody wants. I'll take it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, it's perfect. She rented it right away, uh, and it had no insulation or electricity. But she loved its quirks and unsung charm. She wrote in 1953, quote, It was a little house in the middle of a big city, and nobody knew it was there. It had been there for years and years, for over a hundred years, forgotten. And there it stood in a hidden garden in the middle of a big block of skyscrapers. So let that be a lesson to you, everyone. If you're looking to move to New York City, just go to the Upper East Side and just wander around. You never know when you might find an abandoned house (laughs) in the middle of a block that just no one's renting yet. Right. You know, a little fixer-upper. Could be yours. Could be real cheap. Now, this is one of the things that have changed a lot in the intervening (laughs) century. Um. But actually, the house still exists if anyone is like a person who likes to see these landmarks. Uh-huh. They did move it, though, because obviously Upper East Side. Yeah. No place like, for an abandoned farmhouse. Somebody <laughs> walked in and was like, what the fuck is this house doing here? <laughs> they were this like, could be a trillion dollar lot. Exactly. you got one house on it? I'm putting 9,000 condos here immediately. You know how many apartments I could put here? <laughs> yeah. So they, they moved it to Chelsea. Which where it still is, and oh, I'm sure yeah. somebody's mad right now that it's there too. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Chelsea. Oh, no one's looking for real estate in Chelsea anymore. <laughs> Put it in Chelsea, where all the weirdos are. <laughs> she also bought a house in Maine as a writing retreat. Smart. Um, it had no electricity or running water. Okay. So I guess she just liked a simple life. <laughs> she sure did. But you could go to the well and get milk, butter, or and other perishable goods. By simply pulling the appropriate labeled rope, <laughs> and it would pull it up from the well. Okay, so she had placed it down there. Oh, yeah. She's storing it down the well. Yeah, because there's first, no electricity. At first, I'm thinking, you just pull this rope, and magically there's some elves down there that, like, milk a cow real quick, and a pail of milk just comes up. Nah. No, okay. Well, that would have been cooler, but... That would have been cooler. No, instead it was like the boxcar children. Like She stored her yes. milk underground to keep it from spoiling. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. See, I read children's books. I read children's books. Uh, she did have one room outfitted with mirrors everywhere so you could see the sea from any angle in the room. <laughs> the rest uh, of us are all turning our heads like suckers. <laughs> <laughs> she would hide bottles of wine in streams around her property so she could just pull it out and refresh her guests when they were walking around. <laughs> Which is another thing. I'm sure she really just reveled in that. She's like, oh, you thirsty? Too bad we didn't bring anything. Oh, no. Well, what's over here? <laughs> I pull out. <laughs> oh, thank you. And it's all cold and uh-huh. <laughs> delicious. As a practical joke, she would tie cherries and lemons to trees to trick her city-dwelling friends into thinking she was some great green thumb. <laughs> 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 Which I love. Like That's pretty good. The amount of time that you would have to put into that prank. Like, oh, imagine yeah. her out there, like, literally tying a bunch of cherries to a right. tree. is like, so funny. Uh, to, to be fair, I would take it a step further and tie something that doesn't grow on trees. Ooh. You know, I would, grow, I would tie, like, watermelons to the branches <laughs> or something and be like, you want a fresh watermelon? Look. I, I trained it to grow here <laughs> in this tree. <laughs> oh, my God. Eli is, like, amazing with plants. Hey, what can I say? <laughs> what can I say? I lied. What can I say? I (laughs) faked my way through the whole thing. She called it the only house, which I thought was cute. Another quirk of hers is when a friend would ask for the time, she would reply, what time would you like it to be? 
which I think is like cute in theory, but then like as a like in person, you'd be like, like ha ha, Margaret, what time is it? I got a train to catch. Yeah. <laughs> like literally, what time is it? She preferred to write with a quill pen. And even in her late 30s, she was painting glow-in-the-dark stars over her bed in her New York apartment. So she was basically moody Michael Strange's manic pixie dream girl. <laughs> and that's definitely the movie I would make. <laughs> yeah. But it seems like Margaret and Michael kind of had a tumultuous relationship going on between the two of them. At the time, Michael is a total darling of the art world. And Margaret is writing dozens of kids' books every year. Yeah! But Michael was kind of dismissive of Margaret's career. She called them baby books. Oh. And, which, I mean, you they could were. Read a baby, sure. But you know, you know what she meant. But she you know, meant you know it how in a she said way. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, she wasn't like, oh, how's your baby book coming along? Mm-hmm. She was like, how's your baby book coming along? Right. Or you she know. was like, well, I write books and Margaret writes baby books. Baby books. That's not fair. And Margaret already had this kind of deep insecurity about her writing. And she was still dreaming of breaking into the adult market with a real novel. So that probably just made her more insecure to kind of hear that coming from her partner. Mm -hmm. In an interview, she said, I hope to write something serious one day as soon as I have something to say. But I am stuck in my childhood. And that raises the devil when one wants to move on. I think it's a pity that she never wrote a childlike book for grownups. Like, it'd be so cool to have like one of her noisy books. But for grownups. Yeah. And like, remember how you used to look at a city or at the country. Right. Or remember how you used to notice this. And now you don't because you're an adult and you have shit going on. But maybe you should should remember that quality of childhood. Yeah. Or whatever. I don't know. I just feel like we would, even if she had written it at the time, I feel like we'd be reading it today. Like, this lady was way ahead of her time. Yeah. Like, especially with as many people that are like, having trouble with adulting and stuff like i feel like uh, i don't know like childlike wonderment you mean yeah yes but not wanting to pay bills look i'll worry about the bills when my childhood wonderment fades away oh okay i'll let the power company know <laughs> but yeah i don't know i just i think that would kind of resonate a lot if she had tried to do something like that instead of thinking her writing was only for children or that there was a certain type of writing that was only for adults. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. She could have been writing stories for kind of kids, but adults could enjoy it too. Like a boy mm. wizard. Yeah. You know, goes to school and, you know, sort of as the books come out each year, like she can kind of age them up with the audience. That's I don't know. True. It seems like a good idea. If anybody out there wants to use it, go for it. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> but yeah, apparently she did try to write a book about like an erotic story about her and Michael going to the zoo together. And what came out was like a story about a dog and a security guard. So like she would even try (laughs) and she couldn't help but write it, you know, in this really childlike way or whatever. So I'm like, I don't know, maybe she embarrassed herself. Like sometimes you can't, it's hard to write like a sex scene and stuff. Like you can embarrass yourself. And I wonder if she's like, I just can't do that. Like, it's too much. (laughs) She She, one day she was like, I'm doing it. I'm writing a porn. And, they, and, and then somebody comes back and is like, I read your porn. This is called If You Give a Mouse a Cookie. And I'm not really seeing the erotic nature of it. Not turned on at all. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe she was just reading Michael's poetry and she's like, I I can't write about a glistening lips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whatever you're yeah, talking about. You're hogging the thesaurus. <laughs> She's like, there's no way that I would ever write something like those scarlet wings of appalling lips. Like Margaret would be like, oh, that's 
not me at all. Yeah. <laughs> but she thinks that's what she has to write like. Right, maybe. Maybe so. Or Michael's telling her this is what you have to write like. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. At any rate, it seemed like she had a little bit of hero worship for Michael going on. So she kind of already downplayed her own accomplishments in her own mind, and then Michael was also downplaying them out loud. Right. So Margaret's friends who knew them well were not fans of their relationship because of this. They saw this kind of dynamic. They were like, this isn't healthy. We don't like it. Mm -hmm. But Michael was kind of full of shit on this one. Yeah. Because Margaret's career was actually going great. In 1942, she released the book, The Runaway Bunny. <laughs> and that book jumps off the shelves to this day. Little bunny hops right into shopping carts all over the country. Little side note, Speculation Station. Mm. Do you think that there was a little unconscious? Because she was called Bunny by Michael. Uh-huh. Was she like, I love to run away. I am the runaway bunny. Maybe so. I don't know what the Runaway Bunny is about. <laughs> so I, know, I, I don't know. But... It's been a while since I reread that one. <laughs> I haven't gone back and revisited <laughs> the Runaway Bunny. But then she started writing her noisy book series, which chronicled the sounds of the city and the country, the winter and the seaside, all that kind of stuff. It was very auditory, descriptive book. She even wrote the quiet noisy book, which cool. was about the absence of sound. See? Which is... is very interesting, and it had stuff like... It's the sound of a man about to think or a balloon about to pop or something. Yeah, and one I think hand that's clapping. Cool. Yeah, right. But I think it's cool because it gives, like, it's kind of conveying a sense of anticipation. Yeah, Instead yeah, Instead of, yeah, like, yeah. a nothingness, there's right. actually something in that silence. Yeah. sort of cool. That's so cool. She would be one of the first children's writers to emphasize sensory experiences in her books. Things like sound, touch. She really wanted to capture what the world felt like and sounded like from a child's perspective. She once wrote to Michael, the first great wonder at the world is big in me. That is the real reason I write. Early on in her career, she would basically give away her stories. You know, she'd be like, whatever, you take it. But eventually she became a tough negotiator. Um, she refused to dumb down the language. She fought to keep big words in her books. Smart. Yep. Kids don't like to be talked down to. Mm -hmm. Uh, she once mailed one of her editors a set of dueling pistols, <laughs> and she threatened to shoot another one with a bow and arrow. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Which, you so know, she's she's, uh, she's athletic, so I'd be like, she could actually do that and kill me easily. <laughs> she comes in, she's like, she kicks open the door, and she's like, you're going to say goodnight moon at goodnight noon. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so she's <laughs> she's ready to fight about stuff, but it isn't just for herself that she was ready to fight. Um, until Margaret, children's book illustrators were paid a flat fee for their labors, but Margaret fought for them to get the same royalties that she got, so nice. every single illustrator on her books got the same royalties she got. Nice. But it must be said that Margaret, like all of us, was not perfect. She was a human being, so not a perfect person. She held some anti-Semitic views. <gasps> That she blamed on anti-Jewish propaganda that was admittedly pretty rampant in the 30s and 40s. But though she admitted that it was wrong and she wished she didn't have prejudice, she also thought it wasn't something that she could change about herself. Oh, okay. So she kind of had like a too bad, so sad mentality about <laughs> prejudice. I can't help being racist. I'm just a victim of society. Mm -hmm. Come on. Come on, man. Margaret. In 1947, Margaret wrote her most enduring classic, Good Night Moon. The one. The one and only. That same year, Michael was on tour doing a poetry and music series called 
great works with great music. And it was like classic readings of literature、mm-hmm. and classical music playing behind it, which I think would be cool.、Mm-hmm. Depends you know. on the poems you're reading. Oh, I guess. sure. I don't want to hear her poems. They probably. I'd be like,、were. you're, you're ruining this Franz Liszt song <laughs> with your garbage. <laughs> nice drop. There, hey, that you dropped something. I like Liszt. <laughs> He's on my list of my favorite composers.、Ooh. Would you say you have listomania? Yeah, I would say I have listeria. <laughs> We ought to take you to the doctor. <laughs> um, but while she was on tour, she collapsed at the Savoy Hotel. She assumed it was because of exhaustion, but she discovered at the hospital that she actually had leukemia.、Mm. Now she blamed the cancer on her sinful relationship with Margaret, as she put it. Some sources say that she had grown more religious as she got older, so that's probably where she picked up that bullshit.、Mm-hmm. But regardless, Michael still made Margaret the executor of her will. On her deathbed, she called out for Margaret, and the doctors had tried to bar Margaret from Michael's bedside. But you know, you can't hold back Margaret, and she got in there, and she was holding her hand as she died, and she promised to keep her memory alive by reading aloud from her book of poems every morning. And in her own diary, Margaret wrote, "One who has dared to be gloriously good and gloriously bad in one life, no limbo for her." I mean, that's a statement. Yeah, didn't mince words,、yeah. you know. But I think that kind of shows that line. Kind of shows me a little bit more why Margaret loved her and stayed with her for so long, even、yeah. though they were not seemingly not very compatible. Like、yeah. Michael would never go to her main house, for example. Right,、She、refused to go to the the only house.、Mm-hmm. And Margaret would even try to like tempt her by like having little like a more comfortable thing built nearby, and like she would bring stuff, but nothing ever made her come. So it was just like, man, Michael really just was really wrapped up in her own self. But I kind of see that Margaret, you know, she was a weirdo. She was like, I'm wanting. She had a real zest for life. She wanted to experience a lot and see a lot. And Michael did have that in her as well. So you can kind of see where maybe they, they found, something that really threaded them together. Besides literature, <laughs> you know, being into writing. Makes sense. And of course, of course, Margaret was sad and grief stricken after Michael passed away, but she also kind of came into her own. Probably because she didn't have somebody like talking shit about her career into her ear <laughs> yeah, every day. <laughs> <Right> . Some <laughs> for some reason that made her feel better. <laughs> And she wrote her book Mr. Dog after Michael's death, which some believe to be a thoroughly veiled autobiography.、Um, it's about a pipe smoking terrier who belonged to himself and went wherever he wanted to go. Sure. And、Mr. Th- Dog, you can't hold down Mr. Dog. Mr. Dog.、Uh, the terrier is named Crispin's Crispian. And that is Margaret's own dog's name, and that dog was a gift from Michael Strange. Oh, Margaret never seemed to care really that she never had gotten married or had kids of her own. She wrote to her college's alumni magazine in 1945, scoffing, "How many children have you? I have 50 books, <laughs> motherfucker." Yeah, <laughs> looks like. No- oh, let me count. How many books have you written?、Uh, it looks like none. Pretty sure it's none. Although of course children are, you know, her main market. Right. <laughs> Maybe right. don't alienate. Well, <laughs> somebody、great. should have kids. It's great. You have kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I have d- books. This、I、is a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. What are you mad about? Yeah. She honestly didn't really have any particular affinity for children. 
She told a reporter in 1946, quote, I don't especially like children. Wow. <laughs> At least not as a group. Wow. I won't let anybody get away with anything just because he's little. Ouch. A lot of children's authors. Yeah, didn't sure. Like kids. Roald Dahl. Maurice Sendak. Yeah. I think yeah. Uh, Dr. Seuss. Right. She didn't love kids, but she did enjoy talking with one of her neighbor's three kids. He was the middle child. His name was Albert Clark. And they hung out all the time. He would talk to her about her books and share his opinions about what she'd written. And that might be why she decided to name him in her will, giving him the royalties to many of her stories, including Runaway Bunny and Goodnight Moon. No Albert didn't even know it, but he fucking hit the jackpot. Nobody knew, yeah. It's like Kevin Feige. Going to some kid in 2007 and being like, hey, kid, you know what? I'm going to give you all the royalties to this thing I'm putting together. It's called the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I don't know. It's going to be garbage, but here you go. <laughs> it's all yours, kid. Uh, if it ever amounts to anything. Thanks? Sorry to burden you with this. <laughs> Crap. Crap. Anyway, not a bad land for Albert. Uh, well, during a vacation to Cumberland Island, Georgia, she met James Stillman Rockefeller Jr., Known as Pebble to his friends, he was about 15 years younger than her, and he was about to embark on a three-year round-the-world sailing voyage. A Rockefeller? A Rockefeller? <laughs> Going on a voyage? <laughs> Where in the world did he get the money for that? <laughs> oh, wait. He had a boyish manner and a lack of pretense, despite his Rockefeller and Carnegie bona fides. Let's not forget, his dad was a Rockefeller, his mom was a Carnegie. This guy. How I Vacation on a Budget <laughs> by James Stillman Rockefeller Jr. First, have a boat. <laughs> yeah. Don't buy a boat, just have a family yacht. Save yourself millions of dollars. Boom. Here <laughs> Boom, you go. Right there. Now you got millions of dollars to spend on other shit. <laughs> it's called economy. <laughs> Anyway, so he charmed her a lot because he was, you know, so chill and cool and normal. And he was clearly smitten with her as well. They quickly became engaged, like, that weekend. Yeah, all right. <laughs> and he kept his plans for his sailing trip. But this time, the adventurous Margaret would join him on that trip. Nice. Which I think she was probably fucking thrilled about. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. If James Stillman Rockefeller Jr. walked in right now and proposed to me and said, if we get married, you can come on my boat trip around the world, I'd be like, yes, I, okay. a thousand times yes. <laughs> I guess I have to get a divorce first, but. <laughs> we'll, we'll, work out, we'll work that out after the trip, right? <laughs> I'm a Rockefeller. Don't worry about it. Yeah, right. It's and done. It's law, done. Laws don't apply. <laughs> Let me ask my dad. He's a Rockefeller. Oh, he said, ask your mom. She's a Carnegie. You know what? <laughs> it's handled. <laughs> they said, What's the problem? <laughs> they said, what's a problem? <laughs> <laughs> but before they went on the trip to around the world, oh. Margaret had some business she had to handle in France. Uh, and before we find out about her business trip to France, let's find out about these commercials. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. 
wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up, like Mother's Day and the wind-down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect, flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you, something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Welcome back to the show, everyone. So Margaret had to go to France for this business trip before she could go on the adventure of a lifetime. And while she was in France, she had either appendicitis or maybe an ovarian cyst. Our sources disagree, but in either case, she had to be hospitalized. She was very scared for her own life. And she sat in that bed and she wrote out her will. She left the royalties to Albert. She left her ashes and her houses to Pebble, Carnegie Rockefeller. <laughs> And she left her dog, Crispin's Crispian, to Michael Strange's old friend, Walter. But about a week or so later, she was cleared to leave the hospital. Her nurse came in to ask Margaret how she was feeling. And Margaret, feeling fine, did like a little playful kick with her legs to show that she was just feeling great. I can't wait to get out on this voyage. Tragically, and this is the worst thing I've ever heard, that little kick loosened a blood clot that had formed in Margaret's leg. It caused it to travel up to her brain. And moments later, she died. <laughs> she was 42 years old. If that's not that the single so most upsetting. horrifying and upsetting thing you've ever heard, then you've heard some terrible things. <laughs> that is really getting to me. It just like, 
my little joyful kick is what killed me. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. I know, right? I was like, oh, but god, god, just that just goes to show you just never know. Well, I'll be like so scared to kick my legs ever again. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. I'm I'm not moving ever again. <laughs> but that's how you form blood clots. Right. You got to keep moving. Oh my god. Woo. Hug your dogs, man. You just never know. <laughs> And the people you love, too. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously. The dogs and people you love. Because you just never know when you're going to kick your legs wrong <laughs> and die moments later. This is horrifying. <laughs> I need to... I'm going to... You know what? Just put me in a coma. Oh, no. Until they've developed a cure for everything. Well, you'll be waiting a long time because they're going to come up with new shit. <laughs> oh, God. Put me in a robot body. <laughs> well, maybe soon. Plug me into the Matrix. Well, so Margaret has passed... But the story's not over, because I wanted to tell you what happened after this. So Albert had these royalties, but at the time, Margaret's books weren't worth that much. Uh, she and Albert's family probably thought that he would end up with like a little nest egg of a few thousand dollars right. when he came of age or whatever. Right, a couple bucks. But upon Albert's 21st birthday, he and his father went to Manhattan attorney Samuel Nadler and discovered that $75,000 had accumulated since Margaret's death in 1952. And this is now 1965? This is 1965. $75,000. Let's go ahead and plug that into our very high-tech machine here. $650,000 today. This is when a house costs like $12. Yeah. Yeah. That's an insane amount of money. Yes. It's crazy. Yep. And Sam, the attorney, Samuel Nadler, is like, please let me invest this for you. Right. Because you could, like live forever on nothing but dividends but albert is 21 he's a fucking idiot yeah he's like give me the cash he gave half to his family that's nice that's nice and then he spent the rest and he was flat broke by the end of the year oh my god samuel nadler should have been like wow i just looked up your your inheritance and it looks like you have seven thousand (laughs) dollars yeah $7,000, $7,000, and I'll call you if any more comes in. Right. Uh, you know, over the years. Don't worry. Wow. Way to go, Albert. Well, really. Albert had issues. Albert had some issues. Yeah. Um, I think that Margaret liked him as a child because he was kind of mischievous and he mm-hmm. would run around and, you know, he was real outspoken and stuff. But as a grown person, I don't think that worked for him. No. He had a criminal record for theft and grand larceny, which is. Three sizes up from small larceny. <laughs> I'll take my larceny grande. <laughs> grande larceny. <laughs> He's had a venti larceny. Venti you know, larceny. Really? <laughs> Can we start ranking crimes with the Starbucks sizes? I think more people would understand mm-hmm. the severity. Of, like, this wasn't just murder. Of, of venti theft auto. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> this wasn't just murder. This was a venti murder. Oh no! With an extra shot. <laughs> Hot or iced? <laughs> Extremely hot. Wow. But yeah, he also got in for criminal trespass and something called malicious mischief, I guess, is I another crime is. you can commit. <laughs> what is malicious is that mischief? Like, is that like um, if you buy an army from the Chitari and bring them to Earth to conquer mankind and rule over them as a god? That sounds like malicious mischief to me. Well, on a god level, yes. <laughs> I think on an Albert level, what is he like singing Christmas carols in July? <laughs> <laughs> he should have called the bird brains. <laughs> they could have shown up. <laughs> they, would have, they would have had his back. At any rate, Albert 
was had a big problem. He's basically stealing, smashing shit, and causing a ruckus. Yeah, general general bad behavior. So Samuel Nadler, the lawyer, is like, okay, yeah, yeah, let me handle the money here, mm-hmm. bud. And he would give him an allowance. As the investments grew and royalties continued to trickle in, Albert's weekly allowance grew from $125 a week to eventually $500 a week. And didn't stop him. He continued to have run-ins with the law. Nadler would bail him out of jail and handle all his affairs. And then in 1970, Albert married a woman in Puerto Rico. But after the birth of their second kid, he fled the country to avoid drug charges and abandoned the family. Like days after the birth of his second child. You got this, right, hon? Thanks. Gotta go. Bye. Ouch. His weekly allowance was $800 by this point, and he just started wandering the streets and sleeping in an old van. He met a homeless woman. He sobered her up and married her. Not sure how he did this in the condition he was in. Great question. They had two kids together. Years later, he would accuse her of child cruelty and divorce her and gain custody of the kids. He believed that Margaret was his real mother. What? He claimed that he heard his mother confess to it. But she says, no, Mm-mm. I never said that. And most of Margaret's friends were like, no absolute way that's the case. Because, first of all, she couldn't have hidden a pregnancy from us. We would have known about that. And second of all, she wouldn't have hid a pregnancy from us. She right. was not the type to, to, to shy away from that, not yeah. tell people. Yeah, more than likely she would have... Just kind of flaunted it and yeah, or not flaunt it, but kind of like her lesbian relationship, which like, of course, people surely were whispering and had all kinds of things to say about it. But she just kind of didn't care. Yeah, you know, it wasn't like, care. look at look at me, look at it. Right. But it also wasn't like, I'm not going to change for you. Right. So over the decades, Mr. Albert has gone through about five million dollars in royalties. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we're not. sure about what's going on with him right now. Nobody's written about him in some time. The last reference was around the year 2000, saying that, um, suggesting that he had Alzheimer's possibly. Mm -hmm. So So, he may have passed by now or he may be in a home somewhere. Yeah, he'd be at least in his 70s, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I think think his children were in line to get those royalties after he passed. Mm. His American children, probably the Puerto Rican children, don't get shit. Who knows if he ever... Went wrote anything down yeah, yeah or like exactly. has any records you, you know what i mean like who, who knows what they have to connect to him do you know what yeah. i mean hey uh how do you feel about a quick fling i mean i've been saying that's a great idea for years <laughs> <laughs> i meant like a quick fling with history yeah that's what i meant too oh good okay yeah. <laughs> well then we're on the same page <laughs> it's time for a quick fling with history nasty yeah, welcome to this newish segment. <laughs> we just kind of realized that there's sometimes stories that are sort of tangentially related that we find interesting, but yeah. they're not necessarily related to the romance, but we just want to make you listen to them anyway. So yeah. here we go. Quick fling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this came up while we were researching the romance, mm-hmm. and it's a really cool little interesting piece of history that everybody should know about. Yes. Margaret's books, of course, would be her true legacy, as we all know. Right. Um, but she never thought Goodnight Moon would make it. In fact, sales were so bad in 1951 that editors were considering shelving it for good. And it was all because of one lady named Anne Carol Moore. Sounds like we could use a little Anne Carol less. <laughs> <laughs> well, depends, I guess. Um, she essentially invented children's libraries. Okay, well, that's cool. Yep. 
She had developed the first one in Brooklyn in 1896. So she went into a regular library and Mm -hmm. then she was like, hmm, guess what? All this shit doesn't work for kids at all. She brought in smaller chairs, shorter shelves. Makes sense. And a lot of plants and flowers and like fun colors um, and just made it a really comfortable space. And kids lined the block to come in. Sure. So in 1906, she became the superintendent of the Department of Work with Children at the New York Public Library. Cool. Because before Anne's Brooklyn experiment, kids were not allowed in libraries. Damn. Which is like the weirdest thing to say to me because it feels like kids and libraries go very well together. Yeah, to me, I'm like, well, I'm an adult. I don't go to a library. (laughs) (laughs) I have a phone. (laughs) Well, like there's huge children's sections. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like a big That's where I did most of my learning as a child was a library. library. Whether it was a school library or the town library or whatever. Mm -hmm. But back in the day... It was kind of like, if the kids are old enough to read, they're probably going to have their minds warped by all these trashy adult novels <laughs> lying around. Yes. Kids are going to come in here and they're going to read Dickens. Oh. Destroy the them forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I won't stand for it. Downfall of society once again. Right. Well, once just keep, again. Once again. Keep in mind, all media has at first been the thing that warped your mind and twisted oh, you forever. Like, constantly. we would probably love it if a kid would read a novel uh-huh. now, but back then reading novels was basically like watching reality television. Right, or right. People were like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you're so intellectually, like, lame or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some kid's going to come in reading Moby Dick, and we'd be like, oh, my God, put it on TikTok. <laughs> it's just a video of this child reading at that level. Is mine. What a brilliant. This kid's a genius. <laughs> and back then they're like, it's rotten his brain. Mm-hmm. These kids are going to grow up to be hooligans. What reading, trash. Reading books. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, they were like, if they're old enough to read, they're going to read the wrong thing. And if they're not old enough to read, then what do they do in a library? <laughs> they can't get any value out of a library. Right. But Anne really changed all of that. She oversaw the central children's room at the New York Public Library. She encouraged kids to check out books. If you could sign your name, you could check out a book. She had no problem with it. She hired and trained diverse staff to go out into their neighborhoods and get kids excited about reading. And she stocked the shelves with diverse books. Um, New Yorker magazine quotes Anne as saying that her job was to give, quote, to the child of foreign parentage, a feeling of pride in the beautiful things of the country his parents have left. Wow. Right? So she stocked the shelves with books in their native languages, and she celebrated their holidays. Damn. Now, this is a time, you know, is mainly all about assimil- assimilation. They were like, immigrants need to learn English. I mean, this is kind of a similar time to now, I guess. Right. It's sort of like, if you can't speak English, get the fuck out. You need to learn to be American. I don't want to hear about St. Patty's Day or whatever. Yeah. But she was like, no, we need them. They should be proud of where they come from, yeah. and they should know about it. It's New York City. Kind of like the melting pot of melting pots. (laughs) Seriously. Let's bring some foreign culture in here. And in 1924, she hired black author Nella Larson to head up the Harlem Library's children's room. Dope. Um, Again, another very unusual move for the time. She also scheduled hundreds of hours of storytelling events. That's fucking great. I I would like to rescind my criticism (laughs) and say that I would like Anne Carroll more. (laughs) I would like Not Anne Carroll less. Again, depends. (laughs) Depends. Because she also picked the books that went on the shelves. And when she was younger, I think that was fine. 
and good. But as she got older and more established in her career, she got a little bit gatekeepy. Uh oh. How about how about some Anne Carroll moderate amount? <laughs> there you go. Neither more nor less, just a healthy serving. <laughs> Anne we'll Carroll medium. <laughs> Anne Carroll. Anne Carroll. Tall. Tall. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. <laughs> Because Anne was all about giving books she thought would elevate their mind or educate mm. them or make them better people or build character or whatever. She felt like, I'm up here as a grown and I'm handing down to the next generation, whatever. So she yeah. loved Beatrix Potter. She loved The Velveteen Rabbit. Cool. That type of book. You know, she loved Beatrix Potter. I wonder what she would think today of James Corden's Peter Rabbit films. Oof. Probably as much as I think of them. <laughs> Which is not much. That's the first time I've thought of them. I'm so glad you brought them up. <laughs> and this whole Bank Street experimental school thing where they get on the kids' level and stuff did not appeal to her oh, at all. Nope. And if Anne Carol Moore did not buy a book, no library in the country bought that book. Oh, my God. She supposedly had a custom-made rubber stamp that said... Not recommended for purchase by expert. And she would go through like publishing catalogs and just stamp different books with that. Oh, my God. She was the Oprah of her day. Yes. Just like she, if, she, if a book was going to blow up, it's because she said so. Literally, yeah. She would put a sticker <laughs> on the book she likes and a big stamp on the book she didn't. And if you got the stamp, your book ain't getting bought. It's oh. torpedoed. Um, Betsy Bird, who is a longtime New York Public Library librarian, wrote a great blog about Anne Carol Moore. And she said, quote, she could effectively kill a book with that stamp. Wow. And she hated Goodnight Moon. Damn. She said, what is this garbage? <laughs> Trash. Why would anyone say goodnight to their bed? Right. Why would anyone say goodnight to the Goldfish or whatever. I don't remember what the fuck I know, she right? says goodnight like, to. But I don't remember all the things. It's, it's a like, rocking Good night, chair. room. Good, good night, moon. Yeah. Good night, cow jumping on the moon. Wait, I said moon twice. That's not it. Uh, good night to the loons. <laughs> good night, balloon. Good night, balloon. There's just a balloon this, in there. Is one know. creepy red balloon in my room. <laughs> There's like every parent listening is like, oh my God, you don't know right. the fucking good night moon. Right, yeah, all these parents are able to recite it from <laughs> They're memory. They're like saying it now. <laughs> these fucking childless adults. <laughs> You assholes. How dare we even do an episode I know, about right? this? <laughs> well, Margaret wanted Goodnight Moon in the library so badly that she had the udders of the cow jumping over the moon blurred out of the photo <laughs> just in case it offended the library ladies who'd made all these decisions. Seeing her at the publishing house going through every book with just little censored stickers, like, just putting on every... But Anne dismissed Goodnight Moon as, quote, unbearably sentimental. Damn. Ice cold. Yeah. I would call it quite bearably sentimental. <laughs> <laughs> Again, depends. We're not parents, so we haven't had to yeah. read it 400 yeah. times True. in the last two hours or whatever. Um, and by the way, Anne is already retired at this point. But she still is running shit at the library anyway. Like her oh, successor no. was run ragged by this lady. She would mm -hmm. try super hard to avoid her. She would change the date, location, and time of all their meetings. And she would show up and Anne would be there would without fail. She had connections inside. Mm. 
She's like, you can't pull one over on me. I still run this show. <laughs> She's such a crazy person. <laughs> she also hated E.B. White's Stuart Little. Wow. And she tried to kill that book, too. She spent a couple years, like, petitioning against it, basically. Like, she said, I'm going to put some rat poison out for this motherfucker. <laughs> right? She's like, this shit is nonsense. Not what I expected from E.B. White. I thought it would be a real good book, and it's a piece of shit. And I guess at one point, the the library stocked it, and the librarian took it off the shelf. They only had one copy, so she took it off the shelf and sat on it so nobody could check it out. Wow. That is cold. <laughs> that is so petty. <laughs> <laughs> this, look, I know a few librarians, and that world is intense. It's, 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 it is like place. Game of Thrones. But she actually lost the battle against Stuart Little in 1947. So, which is when Goodnight Moon came out. So maybe she's just in a really bad mood and she took it out on Goodnight Moon because <laughs> she just got stamped on. Uh-huh. Um, if anyone wants to know about her battle with E.B. White, uh, it's a really interesting story. There's a great article by Jill Lepore called The Lion and the Mouse in the New Yorker um, for the whole thing. And it really tells you a lot about Anne Carol Moore and E.B. White and this whole back and forth they had. And it's really interesting. So anyway... The New York Public Library would not stock Goodnight Moon until 1972, when it was nearing 100,000 copies sold. You know, they're probably like, oh, shit, we should uh, should probably get that book. Right. I mean, if, you know, people are probably asking, where the fuck is Goodnight Moon? Surely. Is it always checked out or what? People are like, no, we're not allowed. We were. We don't have it. It's been banished from libraries. (laughs) They're like, but she died like a long time ago. <laughs> yes, but she's still here. <laughs> no, right? like, she's everywhere. Sometimes I still hear a stamp stamping <laughs> away. But hey, you know what? Mm-hmm. I think Margaret got the last laugh here. I agree. Because Michael is always talking shit about her baby books. Well, baby books. And Anne Carol Moore, you know, trying to shut the whole thing down and keep it out of libraries. But I'll tell you what, it's the year 2021. And we are still reading those books. Mm-hmm. And we ain't reading Michael's poetry. No, thank you. And Ann Carol Moore thought it was sentimental claptrap, but it's one of the most checked out books from the New York Public Library today. Mm-hmm. Even Margaret, judging herself, thought her writing was childish. You know, she was self-critical. But now there's literally academic writing about how deceptively simple and brilliant her books are. Mm-hmm. So she showed everybody, she even showed herself. That's right. You know, Margaret. in the long run. Show yourself. Margaret. <laughs> you're worth it, Margaret. Yeah. You did some good work. Which I'm glad. I mean, I I, I guess I'm glad she had a great career while she was yeah. alive. Yeah. She she knew she was successful at what yeah. she was she, at her chosen path or whatever at, at her time. Yeah. But it is hard sometimes when people are a little bit ahead of the curve or mm-hmm. they start, you know, something, a trend like children's literature and, and just have no idea. I mean, and Ann Carol Moore either. Yeah. If they went to a friggin' Barnes and Noble right now, they would be like blown away by how yeah. much of it is children's books. Yeah. And then if you go it's in there. damn store. Yeah. And then if you go in, you have to see that, oh, there's really small children's books, uh-huh. board books and stuff, all the way up to eight and nine and 10 and 12. And then now there's teen you know, like we're Young really adults, thinking huge. about what you want to be reading and thinking about and hearing about and learning yeah. at different ages of your life. And that is thanks to, in part to her work. Yeah. 
I think I think if she was like you were saying, if she wrote like children's book for adults today, I think she would be a, a YA author. Yeah, probably. I think she, that's that would have been her window. Mm-hmm. I can write fantasy stories for older people, you know, not for little kids yeah. who kind of annoy me, <laughs> but I'll entertain them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I could I could write some cool shit. What is that about children's book authors hate kids? hating kids? I don't get it. I'm mm-hmm. just like, what, maybe it gives them, I don't know, just a different way to connect because they've never been like, oh, little baby, you're well, so precious. Like they were just like, write a good book and the kid will like it. I don't know. We talked about Roy Kent and Ted yes. Lasso uh, and how he talks to kids and they love him. And it's mm-hmm. because we've you know talked about this before, talk to kids like they're adults. I mean, don't talk to them like they're adults, but just talk to them normal. Right. Don't change yourself for the kid. They can feel that. They can read that. And it feels patronizing. Yeah. And yeah. nobody likes that. Even yeah. if they're not rude about it, you can tell they don't want to spend time with you. So I think that people who inherently kind of don't care for children mm-hmm. do that automatically. Right. And then, you know, so they speak to them better. They're able to kind of, you know, communicate with them more clearly and, and, and in a way that the kids appreciate more. Mm-hmm. You know, so these adults are like, that's how you get a Roy Kent who's like, God, I fucking hate having to talk to this kid. And the kid's like, I, I love that you said that. I'm so happy. I'm right glad now. that you didn't bullshit me right now and uh-huh. just said, I fucking hate that I'm stuck with a kid right now. And then you're like, oh, I guess I don't hate that I'm stuck with a kid right now because you're not being a kid. You're being a normal ass person, mm-hmm. um, which is what kids are. Right. Uh, but hey, kids, thanks for tuning in. Yeah. You know, I was glad we were able to bring this story. Yeah, I, I hope. I hope you enjoyed it. I yeah. kind of, I just kind of love this um this secret. I guess it's not really a secret, but I kind of love this like lesbian relationship for this children's author. You know, I feel like there's a lot of parents out there who probably are like, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> witchcraft. Good night, Moon know, is right? witchcraft. Now. <laughs> there's probably secret lesbian messages in it. <laughs> They're converting our children to Good Night Moon. I don't know if they still the have moon that. Moon is a very feminine symbol. That's true. So if you're the if cow you're, has udders. Oh my god. This is lesbian central. This book is <laughs> lesbian central. This book is the gay agenda. Oh no. <gasps> good night moon is the gay agenda. The gay agenda is to say good night to everything in your room. <laughs> wow, that's so whimsical. <laughs> How cute for the gay I know. agenda. I love the gay agenda. I feel like there should be more to it, but uh, it's just me. <laughs> do they still do that? Do they still be like Kids can't read this or make them gay. Oh, I'm sure they do. Yeah. Because I mean, we had um, the Teletubbies. That's what oh, was yeah. happening in, in high school. <laughs> when thought... What's his face? Pat Robertson was like, oh, my God, the purple one is a triangle and that's a gay symbol. And I was like, <laughs> what child? Are you going to get everything with triangles and be like, that means you're trying to teach them to be gay? And I was like, yeah. No, I'm trying to teach them shapes, you bitch. <laughs> the triangle is the most architecturally stable shape there is. That's what they're teaching kids. Right. Stability. Where's Where's my conspiracy theory that the Teletubbies were actually an Illuminati thing? <gasps> oh, yeah, obviously. Because it was like pyramids and there was a sun oh that God. was looking at you. Baby in the sun, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's all on the dollar bill. Look it up, people. Do your own research. <laughs> Do your own research. <laughs> Me. <laughs> oh, well. Well, now that we've enraged all the conspiracy theory people out there, <laughs> how about we give out our <laughs> email address? <laughs> Great timing. <laughs> if you'd like to tell me what a stupid bitch I am <laughs> for talking shit about the Illuminati, 
you can email us at romance at iheartmedia.com. Right. Or if you want to harass us on social media, you can get us at Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Eli. I'm at DianamiteBoom. Uh, you can also find the show at Redick Romance on both those platforms as well. If you just want to, um, you know, send us hate messages there, <laughs> if that's what you're into. But I would like to say good night, listeners. Good night, friends. Good night, people with big rear ends. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, that's what that's I got. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> that's beautiful. Look, it's no Margaret Wise Brown, but it's better than Michael Strange. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, guys. That's the metric for the day. Try to be as good as Margaret Wise Brown, but definitely better than Michael Strange. <laughs> <laughs> a nice window there. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and we will catch you on the next one. Love you. Bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2 and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 